Things that make me really happy. Um, listening to records while drinking kombucha. Um, my favorite records. I just got a record player and I got Bill Fay's first album. Um, in fact, I'm just going to read you the first lines from the Garden Song. Because I think I referenced it in my last podcast, actually. We're going to read you the lyrics. I might even play it on my phone. Hold on. Okay, listen to this. This is this dude is so inspiring to me. I'm planting myself in the garden. Believe me. Between the potatoes and parsley. Believe me. And I'll wait for the rain to anoint me and the frost to awaken my soul. I'm looking for lasting relations with a green fly, spider, or maggot. Believe me. They're telling me something I don't know. Telling me? They're telling me something I think so. Telling me. But I'll wait till I know where there's a moment to get up from my chair by the sea, and I'll be able to say that I've been there, telling me something I don't know. Telling me. I'm planting myself in the garden Believe me Between the potatoes and parsley Something I think so. 
magical stuff, man. Huh. That dude. That dude. Every album Bill Fay has done is amazing. Like, that's his first album, which isn't available for streaming. I had to play that off YouTube, but, um, like, <clears throat> it's, like, every, I think he did one in the 70s or late 70s that hasn't been released. I don't know. Um, but the four that I'm speaking of, this one, uh, just Bill Faye self-titled, and then, um, Time of the Last Persecution is Time of the Last Persecution is like out of this world. It's so good. It's like this amazing dark like oh man, it's cool. And then um Life Life as People is the most recent one he's released and um no, that's not true. There's been 3 that he's released and I guess the most recent one in modern times. Um cuz he like I think he was like an electrician or something, or electrical engineer or something, because his music really didn't go anywhere. And then um, a bunch of people really liked it. He like had this cult following because it's so good. And like um, he like in so then like I think it was like 2010 or something like that. Somebody rediscovered that somebody got in contact with him. Was like, hey, do you have any? Like, do you want to record more albums? And he's recorded three albums since. Life is People, Who is the Sender, and the latest one um, is Countless Branches. Whew. They're really good. Um, so I can't say enough about this guy. Um, but I there, I do have other favorite singers too, um, and David Berman being one of them, um, which I want to dedicate a whole episode to David Berman um, someday because... Um, yeah, that that's another like amazing songwriter. Anyways, listening to their music makes me feel really good. Listening to music in general that I really like makes me feel really good. And drinking kombucha makes me feel very good. And going for walks makes me feel good. Writing music and writing poems makes me feel good. The the creative moment when you get surprised by something makes me feel really good it's like where did that come from <laughs> i'm pretty sure it didn't come from me uh that's a good feeling the creative moment uh when you just i think it's similar to like channeled well i think that just reality obviously i have you know it's th is much much more richer and deeper uh then we know and when you open yourself to those kind of channels like stuff comes and it's just like feels good it feels like going for a walk it feels like going for a walk barefoot yep it feels like i like saying this like really like kitschy stuff because it's true it wouldn't be widely accepted and seem cliched if it wasn't like nearly a universal truth um you know what else makes me happy recording this podcast and reading from my book also it's sunday morning so this is a great thing to do on sunday mornings i should record all my podcasts on sunday mornings 
Um, sorry I missed last week. Um, apologies for that. Um, I actually did record a podcast. My wife and I recorded um, a conversation, but the audio was not good, which has been a continuous issue with trying to get two people recording. Um, I know when I record my brother, I just use one one recorder, um, and we like had it set up in between us, and I think that's probably what I need to do with my wife and I. I tried using two microphones... And the sound, like, on one microphone was really good, but the other microphone was really quiet. And so when I brought it up, it was, like, staticky, but then it sounded really off from the other microphone. And so, yeah. So I, I think I now I've, like, recorded, like, three episodes with my wife and that I haven't been able to release any of them because the audio of audio issues, which is unfortunate. But we'll talk again. It's really actually nice to record a podcast with somebody who you spend life... I think when you hear podcasts with people who are, like, partners or whatever, um, you think, oh, well, this is just how they talk all the time. But it's actually not true. Like, um, it's nice to, like, carve out, like, an hour where you can just have, like, kind of deep conversation with somebody you spend your days with. Because, you know, like, especially in a podcast format where it's, like you're actually thinking about things like bigger than like what am I going to get from the store or like I don't know I mean that that's really nice to that's a nice experience to have um so I'd actually like I think I might want to record episodes with everybody in my family but I don't know I have to talk to my everybody in my family about that and see if they'd be okay with that I don't know yeah Maybe just my wife and um, my brother, obviously. He's down all the time. Um, I have a sister as well. She's two years younger than me. It'd be really cool to talk to her, too. But um, I have two siblings. Um, But, okay. Anyways, back to this book. Sacred Text. I think I might already said that, but... I tried to read this chapter last week, last Saturday, and because I was trying to keep my streak, I was like easily getting like for a while there like one episode every week, and I was like, "Sweet, I'm getting into like a groove." And then I lost my groove last week, but I'm trying to get back on it here. Um, okay, this chapter is called "Doing." All of these flavors of scarcity share a common root a kind of existential scarcity for which I cannot find a name. It is a scarcity of being, the feeling, I am not enough, or there is not enough life. Born of the cutoff of our extended selves that inter-exist with the rest of the universe, it never lets us rest. rest. It is a consequence of our alienation, our abandonment to a dead, purposeless universe of force and mass, a universe in which we can never feel at home, an universe in which we are never held by an intelligence greater than our own, never part of an unfolding purpose, even more than the scarcity of time and money, it is this existential unease that drives the will to consume and control. Uh, sometimes this actually paragraph is really interesting. Um, it makes me think 
I know like way, I think man was almost a year ago, I recorded a podcast episode where I talked about um, affirmations. And if you just write down like negative affirmations, you're telling yourself and then flip it to the positive side, it can be like really powerful. And I was thinking about that as I was reading this because it was like kind of sounded really negative. So I'm going to read like a positive version of it here and just see how it feels inside of you. This is why I think the world is magical because when you say like positive words, like it really does feel like it has an effect. Okay. Okay. There isn't a scarcity of being. The feeling... Excuse me. There isn't a scarcity of being. There are feelings. I am enough. And there is enough life. Okay. Sorry, this isn't working. <laughs> I was trying. No, you could do like the, the. You could do like the affirmation like, I am enough. And there is enough life. Um. And then you could say, like, okay, we are in a universe held by an intelligence greater than our own, part of an unfolding purpose. Yeah. I don't know if this one works very well for it. Oh, we are not, we are not the result of a consequence. We are not, the, not a consequence of our alienation. And we are not our abandonment to a dead, purposeless universe of force and mass. We live in a universe in which we can always feel at home. A universe in which we are held by an intelligence greater than our own. Part of an, and we are part of an unfolding purpose. Yeah, that sounded all right. That sounded nice. It's funny. I think sometimes like, if you have like a really negative story, just like flip it. I don't know. Um, okay. Um, all right, I probably totally lost my place here. Um, even more than the scarcity of time or money, it is this existential unease that drives the will to consume and control. The primary habit that arises from it is the habit of always doing. Here and now is never enough. You might protest that people in the Western world spend vast amounts of time doing nothing productive at all, watching TV and playing video games, but these are displacements of doing and not non-doing. I am not saying that it is bad to do. I am saying that there is a time to do and a time not to do, and that when we are a slave to the habit of doing, we are unable to distinguish between them. As I mentioned earlier, the time to do is when you know what to do. When you don't know what to do and act anyway, you are probably acting out of habit. Let's not get ca too caught up in the word do. Obviously, the distinction between doing and not doing breaks down under close scrutiny. scrutiny. Perhaps an example will make my meaning clearer. I recently participated in a day-long meeting of about 30 activists from around the world gathered around the issue of localism. We had been at speakers, we had been all been speakers at a conference. The day started with the conversation that, after an hour or two, started to touch on some deep issues of how to create change. But then some of us were uncomfortable with what we perceived as just talking. Or was it that we were uncomfortable with the deeper things we were touching? So we split up into task-centered groups to do something. Part of our plan, part of our group consciousness believed that if we didn't produce an action plan, a statement, or something tangible from the day, it would have been a waste. As it turned out, it was, af it was the afternoon that felt like a waste. 
and the morning that felt productive, despite the fact that nothing got, quote, done. Perhaps the problem was that we had rushed into an attempt to do before the group as an entity was mature. We acted from a habit of urgency. Again, that is not to say that we should never make plans, organize task groups, delegate work, or engage in linear step-by-step thinking. It is that we need to acquire sensitivity to when it is the right time to do these things. We are like a man lost in a maze. He runs around frantically, hitting the same dead ends again and again, repeatedly circling back to his starting point. Finally, he pauses to rest, to breathe, and to ponder. Then, in a flash, he understands the logic of the maze. Now it is time to begin walking. Imagine if instead he says, No, I cannot pause to rest. Only by moving my feet will I ever get anywhere. So I must not stop moving my feet. We tend to devalue those periods of pause, emptiness, silence, and integration. How to get out of a maze. Yes, it does help to wander around and explore, but at some point one must stop and reflect. Is there a pattern to my wanderings? What do I remember about how I got lost here in the first place? What is this maze for anyways? Perhaps the earlier stage of panicked, frantic running around or of increasingly futile action is, is necessary, but many of us are now ready to, turn, to try another way. The situation on earth today is too dire for us to act from habit, to reenact again and again the same kinds of solutions that brought us to our present extremity. Where does the wisdom to act in entirely new ways comes from? Comes from? Come from? Excuse me. Where does the wisdom to act in entirely new ways come from? It comes from nowhere, from the void. It comes from inaction. When we see it, we realize it was right in front of us all along. It is never far away, yet at the same time it is in a different universe, a different story of the world. A Chinese saying describes it well, as far away as the horizon and right in front of your face. You can run toward it forever, run faster and faster, and never get any closer. Only when you stop do you realize you are already there. That is exactly our collective situation right now. All the solutions to the global crisis are sitting in front of us, but they are invisible to our collective seeing, existing, as it were, in a different universe. When we are trapped in a story, we can only do the things that the story can recognize. Often we are aware of being trapped, the old story is ending, but don't have access to any alternative, we haven't yet inhabited a new story. Leaders in social and environmental organizations feel trapped in the confines of the fundraiser, the membership campaign, the press release, and the white paper. A new outrage looms. What to do? Send out another appeal? On every level, our solutions are less and less effectual, but our story allows no alternative. Speaking of that, I would like to say, um, so my wife is a member of the... um, um, Nature Conservancy, I think. Um, she's a, a master naturalist in our state that we live in. And so, um, anyways, we have like a, our yard is like a wildlife habitat. <laughs> um, like we don't, anyways, like we've got like, so she's like, with that, we have like a certification of our yard being like a, like a resource for animals. Um, but we're like in the middle of a city. Um, but we just don't use any chemicals or anything and have, like, a lot of native plants for animals to eat from. And um, so, anyways, because of that certification and then because she's a master naturalist, like, her name got on, like, this mailing list. And you would not believe the amount of, like, junk mail that these environmental organizations <laughs> send 
it's like i i see what it's like it's like the worst i mean it's like the worst kind of junk it's like constant junk mail like big packets of stuff and i'm just like man i I understand i guess like the needs but i know how these i know the need for funding is so great and i think i feel like these companies like the environmental companies like hire um like people who do junk mail (laughs) like the people who used to handle that for other corporations and they're like hire them specifically and they're like okay because it's so it's so constant um junk mail from nonprofits, environmental nonprofits, like the world like we don't we like so we get from them from like the nature conservancy the world wildlife federation but then we get like these other ones too like the oceans projects and stuff like that which are all good things i agree but it's just like like man that's a lot of like paper like and i don't know and, and plastic too like and, and the waxy coated papers and stuff anyways modern environmental movements are interesting to think about um green dreamer is a really good podcast and she talks about this stuff all the time on there and um a lot of a lot of um there's another so and charles eisenstein actually talks about too in the book climate um that yeah well it's a he talks about in this book too you know like the idea the the ideas of force and stuff it's like maybe maybe magical means are a better way to like achieve ends of um bringing ourselves into alignment with our home and our planet um so anyways i'm gonna keep reading but i just thought i'd say that throw that out there okay When we are trapped in a story, we can only do the things that the story can recognize. Often we are... Oh, I just read that. Okay. On every level, our solutions are less and less effectual, but our story allows no alternative. The same might be said for the monetary authority's response to financial crisis, and more generally to governments everywhere. In the most places, the political system is frozen into increasingly irrelevant debates in which real solutions aren't even on the table. In the U.S., amid the wrangling over troop levels, withdrawal timetables and on, and, excuse me, withdrawal timetables and so on, where is the call to withdraw from all military bases worldwide and to dismantle the standing army entirely? It's not part of the conversation. Of course, for it to enter the conversation would require the rejection of deeply held myths about the way the world works, the causes of war and terrorism, the real goals of American foreign policy, and so on, all the way down to our notions of good and evil. If one has not questioned these myths, then a call to disband the military would seem laughably naive. Yeah, all the way down to our notions of good and evil. That's why this book, that's why I like this book so much. It, and the ascent of humanity also talks about that kind of this kind of stuff too. But similarly, where in the universe of political dialogue on agricultural where similarly, where in the universe of political dialogue on agricultural policy is the idea of a large-scale transition to permaculture involving big gardens where lawns are today, a repopulation of rural land, humanure composting, and the therapeutic effects of reconnecting to the soil. This could sequester carbon back into the soil, end the eutrophication of waterways, replenish aquifers, and reverse desertification. 
It will provide meaningful work to millions who are looking for it, drastically reduce fossil fuel use, and produce more food on less land, allowing wild ecosystem restoration. It takes some doing to document these claims, many authorities state categorically. The only way to feed 7 billion people on this planet is with massive fossil fuel inputs. To refute this claim requires deconstructing its basic assumptions about agriculture and diet. How many of them take into account, to use one example of hundreds, crops like the Mayan breadnut, which in the tropics can produce eight times the caloric yield of corn per hectare with superior nutrition and storability, can be collected in vast quantities with minimal labor, requires no pesticides, only needs to be planted once, is drought resistant, provides fodder for goats and cows, and can be used as an overstory crop with vegetables, aquaculture, etc. underneath. This tree has been cut down all over Central America to make room for corn. Footnote. I have chosen here an example that conflicts with current paradigms only mildly. I could also discuss Shawberger-inspired water practices, homeopathic soil preparations, the methods used at Findhorn or Mashal small rights work with nature divas, but then those of you who are prepared to accept mine bread nuts, but not water intelligence or nature divas, might doubt the rest of what I have to say too, guilt by association. Now, now, I don't really believe those things, do I? Jokingly aside, the truth is that I would like to believe them, but still need help to effectively inhabit these stories. When I tried supplicating the nature divas, a groundhog ate every vegetable in my garden anyways. The thing about the Mayan bread nuts, one thing it doesn't do is make money. And it's also not part, like, the thing with the corn is like, we live in industrial systems with indust with fixed industrial systems. And I, like a lot of things in our world, um, these systems get set up. And then once you're providing a job for people and people are making money and people's livelihoods depend on these systems, it's very difficult to change those systems. So even though something like a Mayan bread nut might be a lot better solution, um, as far as feeding people goes, um, well, one he said right here. I mean, it sounds like it's um, it's a perennial, which means that you don't have to replant it; it comes back. Um, well, that's a problem because you can't make any money off of it. I mean, that's one issue. But it, I'm probably oversimplifying that. But like, um, you know, I think that sometimes I sink into despair because I'm like. You know, something that is more efficient, like requires minimal labor, like um, you can't, it's hard to switch over to those systems um, because there's these systems already in existence of land ownership and um, industrialized systems of corn production. I mean, corn production is, uh, and soy production is which if you live in the Midwest United States where I've lived my whole life um like there's just I mean Arkansas is a little bit the state where I live now is a little bit different we've got a lot have a lot of rice here but um I was I grew up in Illinois and Illinois Iowa um Nebraska Missouri um like Ohio that that like it's corn and soybeans, and the reason they do that is because uh, the soybean provides nitrogen for the corn. But then we have all these institutional systems like soy around and plastic, uh, 
and and corn around fuel and ethanol um, that are so important to our modern way of life that it's like we can't just switch all that land to Mayan bread nuts. Um, and I think this is why I really take a hard look at arguments that say, like, we our world is on the right path, I guess, when in fact, like, more smaller systems that are more interconnected to the land would probably be a lot more efficient in terms of food production. Um, I don't, and I, like I said, I know I haven't, I just suspect that. Um, I mean, I've, I've heard the billions of people on earth argument many times that we need industrialized crop production to feed that many people. Um, I just, I don't think we're looking at all the solutions personally. And it's like these systems were fine before like capitalism and colonial systems showed up like villages and the way humans kind of naturally work without technology. Um, I don't know. I should probably read Steven Pinker's book, but um, I just don't. I just feel like also even that book is probably going to be cherry picking data points that like support his thesis. I don't know. I think there's a lot of arguments to be made that like the old. I wouldn't say the old ways. I think the evolved ways of doing things are probably more efficient because evolution in nature is like very efficient in its means. Um, of producing things that the things that evolve slowly over time systems of community that evolve slowly over time probably work better with our human psyche um and our and our food production on the planet but and i in this book what i really like about it is that he makes the point that like your heart already knows what's going to be best for the planet and like that's what i mean walking barefoot like you already know that it feels really good so, like, is something inside of you that comes from someplace that's not explainable. Um, it's like love and caring for somebody, or forgiveness. It's like, it comes from a place that's not explainable. Um, and I think it comes from, I think it comes from our our heart or our soul, which I, which I believe is intrinsically weaved into the nature and fabric of reality. But anyways, uh, I'm going to keep going. Okay. After I take a drink of my kombucha. Um, okay. Uh, oh, next page. Clearly, a transition to crops like Mayan bread nuts and hundreds of other underutilized food species cannot happen with accompanying cultural and economic changes. Okay. The globalization of food culture, media images that per perpetrate an industrial diet, the cultural narrative that holds agricultural work as lowly, the financial system that pushes farmers toward commodity crop production, regulations that take exist existing agricultural practices for granted, and the pecuni pecuniary interests of seed and pesticide companies all contribute to the agricultural status quo. 
The very notion of uniform crop growing on a controlled substrate draws from scientific paradigms of a generic material substrate of uniform elements upon which we impose order, order and design. That's a lot of stories, layer upon layer, that have to change. Thus I say that our revolution must go all the way to the bottom, all the way down to our basic understanding of self and world. We will not survive as a species through more of the same. Better breeds of corn, better pesticides, the extension of control to the genetic and molecular level, that we need to enter a fundamentally different story. That is why an activist will inevitably find herself working on the level of story. She will find that in addition to addressing immediate needs, even the most practical, hands-on actions are the telling of a story. They come from and contribute to a new story of the world. Yeah, I, that whole those last two paragraphs could be easily said about architecture. And honestly, I think that's probably why I'm so drawn to this story. It's because I, when I was in architecture school, I really did think that we could solve the world's problems with design and green design and better design. I mean, there's like there's two ty- there's two different types of things there. I'm, I mean, green design would be like designing more in alignment with technologies that are more in alignment with nature. Uh, you know, green walls, vegetated roofs solar panels, you know, water collection systems, proper building orientation, um, gray water catchment systems in your building. Those are like green technologies. And then, um, and there's more to come. But And then good design is, I think, like piercing into the magic of a space where you're actually like creating emotional... Um, you're creating emotional, um, creating emotional experiences with like the space, with sunlight and shadow, etc. Um, and so, I think that um, so that's where I was in architecture school, and I thought that was like a solution. But as I got into the workplace, and I realized that like those solutions, those types of design decisions were not being able to be made by architects. They're more being made by clients. And the money was the driving factor. That's when I realized that, like, the problems of money, as far as creating a, a, a good place for people to live, and um, that's when it made more sense to me. I started looking at, like, thinking about traditional systems, and, like, which I'm not saying everything needs to be built in a traditional form. But I do think that a culture or community can come up with a form that's richer than one kind of like genius designer. Um, Even though, I mean, I think some people are more predisposed, obviously, to design a beautiful space than others. But I do think that like really, really rich spaces like cathedrals, for example, um, where there's no architect of a cathedral it's all um, these tradespeople, and there are master builders, you know, but there weren't, um, back in the Middle Ages, you didn't have, like, this one person is, like, this amazing designer, where now we have, like, this even term called star architect, which is, like, and, and true, these architects, I mean, they, I agree, they make phenomenal spaces, amazing places to be, like, Louis Kahn and Carlos Scarpa, and modern people like David Adige, um, 
you know, Zaha Hadid, like these like really incredible architects are, are making amazing spaces, but it's just that like those spaces are usually reserved for the elite and they're usually very expensive to build. Um, and then what's given to just regular people or the majority of people is really awful spaces. Whereas before our towns and cities used to be very rich spaces that kind of reflected the community back to them. So um, that's kind of, and I think that they're, that's why I kind of have arrived at this place where it's like, if I'm going to improve architecture, if I'm going to have a purpose, if I'm going to have a reason to do something and make a real difference, you have to go back to the source, like all the way back down the road of separation because separate the ideas of separation are what have brought us here to this point of in modernity where we're really struggling with things um with connection etc and i do i think the solutions um isn't like necessarily return you just have to go back and see where you came from and see what kind of things you dropped off along the way or you threw out with the bathwater um that you want to bring back into the mix i think i think magic and spirituality is pretty big one personally and i because i think that underlies connection and love and it kind of goes against this idea of like maximizing my self-interest which allows you to you know really kind of create something good for our for ourselves and each other because collectively we have a ton of power um and i believe inside of ourselves we also have a ton of power but when you align those things together together it can be extremely powerful um so, or when you find a group of people who are, like, in the same wavelength as you, like, there is a lot of, like, um, goodness or cohesion with that, I guess. Power with that. Um, all right. Next chapter. Non-doing. The problems we experience in our lives and in the world, whether relationship issues or world hunger, stem from energetic weakness and disconnection. From our lack of capacity to feel ourselves, each other, the earth, and how life seeks to move and evolve through us, the issue is not whether or not is not whether or not to act and quote do something, but what actually prompts us to act. Dan Emmons. Before they are able to enter a new story, most people, and probably most species as well, must first navigate the passage out of the old. In between the old and the new, there is an empty space. It is a time when the lessons and learnings of the old story are integrated. Only when that work has been done is the old story really complete. Then there is nothing, the pregnant emptiness from which all being arises. Returning to essence, we regain the ability to act from essence. Returning to the space between stories, we can choose from freedom and not from habit. A good time to do nothing is any time you feel stuck. I have done a lot of nothing in the writing of this book. For several days, I was trying to write the conclusion, spinning my wheels, turning out tawdry rehashes of earlier material. The more I did, the worse it got. So I finally gave up the effort and just sat there on the couch, a baby strapped to my chest, mentally traveling through the book I had written, but with no agenda, whatever, of figuring out what to write. It was from that empty place that the conclusion arose, unbidden. Do not be afraid of the empty place. It is the source we must return to if we are to be free of the stories and habits that entrap us. If we are stuck and do not choose to visit the empty place, eventually we will end up there anyways. 
You may be familiar with this process on a personal level. The old world falls apart, but the new has not emerged. Everything that once seemed permanent and real is revealed as a kind of hallucination. Hallucinate. Excuse me. Everything that once seemed permanent and real is revealed as a kind of hallucination. You don't know what to think, what to do, and you don't know what anything means anymore. The life trajectory you had plotted out seems absurd, and you can't imagine another one. Everything is uncertain. Your time frame shrinks from years to this month, this week, today, maybe even to the present moment. Without the mirages of order that once seemed to protect you and filter reality, you feel naked and vulnerable, but also a kind of freedom. Possibilities that didn't even exist in the old story lie before you, even if you have no idea how to get there. The challenge in our culture is to allow yourself to be in that space, to trust that the next story will emerge when the time in between has ended, and that you will recognize it. Our culture wants us to move on to do. The old story we leave behind, which is part of the consensus story of the people, releases us with great reluctance. So please, if you are in the sacred space between stories, allow yourself to be there. It is frightening to lose the old structures of security, but we'll find you will find that even as you might lose things that were unthinkable to lose, you will be okay. There is a kind of grace that protects us in the space between stories. It is not that you won't lose your marriage, your money, your job, or your health. In fact, it is very likely that you will lose one of those things. It is that you will discover that having lost that, you are still okay. You will find yourself in closer contact to something much more precious, something that fires cannot burn and thieves cannot steal, something that no one can take and cannot be lost. We might lose sight of it sometimes, but it is always there waiting for us. This is the resting place we return to when the old story falls apart. Clear of its fog, we can now receive a true vision of the next world, the next story, the next phase of life. From the marriage of this vision and this emptiness, a great power is born. I wrote... Possibilities that didn't even exist in the old story lie before you, even if you have no idea how to get there. This is a pretty good description of a place we are approaching collectively. Those of us who have in various ways left the old story of the people are the organs of perception of the collective human body. When civilization as a whole enters the space between stories, then it will be ready to receive these visions, these technologies, and social forms of interbeing. Civilization is not quite there yet. At the present moment, most people still tacitly believe the old solutions will work. A new president is elected, a new invention announced, an uptick in the economy proclaimed, and hope springs anew. Maybe things will go back to normal, maybe the ascent of humanity will resume. Today, it is still possible, without too strenuous an effort to, of denial and pretense, to imagine that we are just in a rough patch. But we can get through it, if only we discover some new sources of oil, build more infrastructure to ignite economic growth, solve the molecular puzzle of autoimmunity, deploy more drones to protect us from terrorism and crime, genetically engineer crops for higher yields, and put white colorant in cement to reflect the sun's rays and slow global warming. Given that all of these efforts are likely to produce unintended consequences, even worse than the problems they intend to solve, it is not hard to see the wisdom of doing nothing. As I will describe later, this does not imply that the activists should focus on obstruction, Doing nothing arises naturally from the breakdown of the story that had motivated the old doings, calling us therefore to do what can hasten what we can excuse me. Doing nothing arises naturally from the breakdown of the story that had motivated the old doings, calling us therefore to do what we can hasten what 
my dyslexia is really kicking in on this sentence. Um, doing nothing arises naturally from the breakdown of the story that had motivated the old doings, calling us therefore to do what we can to hasten that story's demise. My brother, whose clarity of mind is relatively pristine because he rarely reads anything written after 1900, describes to me his vision of how much the changeover will finally... Man, I'm really sorry. I'm messing up these sentences. Um, my brother, whose clarity of mind is relatively pristine because he rarely reads anything written after 1900, described to me his vision of how the changeover will finally manifest. A bunch of bureaucrats and leaders will be sitting around wondering what to do about the new financial crisis. All the usual central bank policies, bailouts, interest rate cuts, quantitative easing, and so forth will be on the table, but the leaders will just won't but the leaders just won't be able to bring themselves to deal with it. Fuck it, they'll say. Let's go fishing instead. At some point we are going to have to stop. Just stop, without any idea of what to do. As I described, with the examples of disarmament and permaculture, we are all lost in a hellscape carrying a map that leads us in circles, with never a way out. To exit it, we are going to have to drop the map and look around. As your old story com came to an end, or comes to an end, do you find yourself contracting a case of the fuckets? Yes, I am contracting a case of the fuckets. <laughs> The procrastination, the laziness, the half-hearted attempts, the going through the motions all indicate that the old story isn't motivating you anymore. What once made it sense makes sense no longer. You are beginning to withdraw from that world. Society does its best to persuade you to resist that withdrawal, which, when resisted, is called depression. Increasingly potent motivational and chemical means are required to keep us focused on what we don't want to focus on to keep us motivated to do that which we don't care about. If fear of poverty doesn't work, then maybe psychiatric medication will. Anything to keep you participating, in business as usual. The depression that makes it impossible to vigorously participate in life as it is offered as a collective expression as well, lacking a compelling sense of purpose or destiny, our society muddles along, going half-heartedly through the motions. Depression manifests in the economic sense, as the instruments of our collective will, money, stagnates. No longer is there enough of it to do anything grand. Like insulin and the insulin-resistant diabetic, the monetary authorities pump out more and more of it, to less and less effect. What would have once sparked an economic boom barely suffices now to keep the economy from grinding to a halt. Economic paralysis could indeed be the way this stop appears, but it could be anything that makes us give up our story and its enactments once and for all. Doing nothing is not a universal suggestion. It is specific to the time when a story is ending, and we enter the space between stories. I am drawing here from the Taoist principle of Wu Wei, sometimes translated as non-doing. A better translation might be non-contravence or non-forcing. It means freedom from, free, from reflexive doing, acting when it is time to act, not acting when it is not time to act. Action is thus aligned with the natural movement of things, in service to that which wants to be born. In this, I draw inspiration from a beautiful verse from the Tao Te Ching. This verse is extremely dense, with multiple meanings, layers of meaning, meanings and this verse is extremely dense, with multiple meanings and layers of meaning. And I haven't found a translation that highlights what I'm drawing from here. Therefore, the following is my own translation. It is the last half of verse 16. If you compare existing translations, you will be astonished at how much they differ. 
all things return to their root. Returning to the root, there is stillness. In stillness, true purpose returns. This is what is real. Knowing the real, there is clarity. Not knowing the real, foolish action brings disaster. From knowing the real comes spaciousness. From spaciousness comes impartiality. From impartiality comes sovereignty. From sovereignty comes what is natural. What comes naturally is the Tao. From the Tao comes what is lasting, persisting beyond oneself. Um, that remind me of uh, this book called Prayers of the Cosmos, um, which is about the Aramaic translation of the Lord's Prayer, which is the language that uh, Jesus, supposed Jesus would have spoken. Um, and so I'm going to, I think I'm going to go find that. So I'm going to, and then I'll close out this podcast with that, if I can find that book. Let me see if I can find it. Okay, I'm back. Um, I actually, we already packed up the book, but I found a PDF of it online. So, um, yeah, so basically this book, Prayers of the Cosmos, is, um, like I said, the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. Um, so I'm going to read this part. I'm going to read it, um, the original Aramaic, and then um, I'm just going to read the first part of it. Um, so, um, the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic is this, which if you don't know the Lord's Prayer, um, maybe I'll read the King James Version first. <laughs> Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So this book, Prayers of the Cosmos, is actually the Aramaic, like I said, the language that Jesus would have spoken. Abun de Boash Meya Neth Kadash Shmak Tete Moktaka Ni wa tsivyanak aikana de bashmaya af bahara havlan lakma de sakana yamana wash baklan kabain akyan dap kan shubyokan kiabian wela talan le nesinia le nes Yina, Ella Patsan, Min Bisha, Beetle Dilakai, Malkatha, Wailaya, Watesh Bukata, Leaman, Almen, Amain, or Amain. Okay, um, so yeah, I don't know if, I mean, surely, I think people know some of how the Bible got translated, but, um, it got significantly changed as the centuries went by, understandably, going through an entire, like, B 
being part of like an empire. Uh, you know, it was Christianity was a religion um, in the Roman Empire, but then the Roman Empire used it to unite all of the pagan religions in the Roman Empire and under one source. Um, so, um, and then it became a tool of an empire. So, and then you've got like 500, 600, 700 years till, well, even more than that, 1500 years until King James writes, you know, and you have these like, um, translated versions of the Bible, like, uh, Luther's version and stuff that are started to be sent out. So like in between that time, there's all these priests and scribes that are translating it. So it gets changed significantly. But going back to Aramaic is really interesting to see what the initial thinkings would have been about it. So that's what this book talks about. Um, but so the first part, Abwa Un Ba Bawash Maya, which in the King James version is our father, which art in heaven. Okay. This part is really cool. O birther. This is the translation of our father, which art in heaven in Aramaic. This is what it would mean. A similar meaning in English, which is the Abwa Un De Boash Maya. O birther, father, mother of the cosmos, you create all that moves in light. O thou, the breathing life of all, creator of the shimmering sound that touches us. Respiration of all worlds, we hear you breathing in and out, in silence. Source of sound, in the roar and the whisper, in the breeze and the whirlwind, we hear your name. Radiant one, you shine within us, outside us. Even darkness shines when we remember. Name of names, our small identity unravels in you. You give it back as a lesson. Wordless action, silent potency, where ears and eyes awaken, there heaven comes. O birther, father, mother of the cosmos. All right. That's all for today. I will. Thanks for listening so much. And uh, I'll be back again. Thank you.